My name is Sarah Armstrong, and this is episode one of A Summer of Spying. In this series, I explore the evidence presented during a court case held in 2020 during the pandemic, and on which I was a juror. In this first episode, we hear the charges and the first bit of evidence. Please be warned, there's some offensive language. It's a Wednesday afternoon in July 2020. An officer from the Crown Court calls to ask me to be in the following day for jury service. I've had letters and emails about it, and I've always wanted to be called for jury service, but never considered it might happen in the middle of a pandemic. Chancellor Crown Court has just reopened after closing in March, and I have no option but to attend. I work from home, and while I'm supposed to be writing my next novel set in the Soviet Union, I haven't been doing anything much. I don't have any marking this July with the exams cancelled, and have been sitting around, reading instead of writing. I have no excuse. There are benefits, though, to being called during lockdown. In normal circumstances, I would worry about leaving the dog alone, but she has all the company she needs. Instead of everyone else in the house leaving for school and work, it is just me heading out with my packed lunch. The world is a more confusing place than it was when I received the first letter about jury service in May, when everything was still closed. There has been a gradual reopening of pubs and restaurants, and then the reclosing of Leicester. For months I have only travelled within a three-mile radius of my house, but at the start of July I leave Colchester to travel to Chelmsford. At Chelmsford Station there are barriers up to separate people, but the station is as quiet as the trains. I have a carriage to myself and don't remember more than three others waiting for trains on the same platform as me. Because of Covid-19, Victoria Road has been made into a one-way street with barriers used to extend the footpath across one lane of traffic, and the same is true of New Street. There aren't many cars on the roads, and very few pedestrians. I have seen Chelmsford Crown Court in the background of local news reports for years. Inside the brown-tiled entrance hall, what looks like school tables are arranged around a metal detector with trays for items emptied from pockets. At the rear of the entrance hall, there are stairs up to the visitor waiting room. As I walk up them, I see a sign which reads, No public past this point, and I realise that I am not the public. Instead, I am now part of the criminal justice system. Further up the stairs is the jury lounge, and at the desk I present the ID and summons letter I've been asked to bring to the court officer. Sixteen people are spread around the jury lounge, which normally holds dozens of people. Socially distanced, we wait to see which twelve are chosen, and wait. Some read, some chat, most are on their phones. The judge comes up to the jury room, introduces the prosecution and defence counsel and explains it will be a very short case, three, maybe four days. And the fact we are going to be sitting as a jury at all is still very experimental. He asks if we recognise the names of anyone involved. No one does and they return to the courtroom. If anyone has any potential bias, such as a job as a prisoner or a police officer, They have to declare it and see if it means they will be dismissed. No one leaves. There are still 16 of us. Two people, separately, ask me if I'm an art teacher. I think it's my clothes, but it might be my grey hair. Finally, a phone call comes through from the courtroom. Twelve names have been randomly selected and relayed through the phone to our room, where the court officer shouts them out. 
If anyone has an event coming up which might be problematic, they say difficulty and the next name is called. I am juror number five. At no point during the trial does anyone show any obvious concern about the virus. I suppose we could wear masks if we asked, but we don't. The rules about mask wearing have yet to be enforced anywhere except on public transport. It wouldn't feel right in a setting where we were reading people's faces and expressions to hide my own face. We wash our hands and use the hand sanitizer and hope for the best. An usher hands me a pack to take to the courtroom. In the black plastic folder I have a notebook, two black biros, a small red bible in a protective plastic envelope, a laminated sheet with a religious oath on one side and a secular affirmation on the other. I am told to turn it to whichever one I am going to read out. There are alternative versions for all religions, but every version of this speech ends with a promise that I will faithfully try the defendant and give a true verdict according to the evidence. The court building conveys ideas of authority, power and surveillance, which are echoed through the case I hear. I don't claim any authority. This is the story of my impressions and my memories of the experience. I have approached the description of this case as a fiction writer. Everything I have chosen to include or exclude is influenced by my own interests, the place and time of this specific trial, and the many feelings inspired by the idea of home, and especially home in 2020. This is my version of the trial. Another juror with different interests would have an entirely different memory. In October 2019, the defendant was charged with five counts. He has already pled guilty to criminal damage and taking a knife as an offensive weapon. We are looking at the three remaining charges. Having a baseball bat as an offensive weapon with the intention to cause harm to a person. Aggravated burglary with the intention to cause grievous bodily harm to witness two. And causing actual bodily harm to witness three. My first reaction on hearing the charges is relief. Friends have sat through much longer and much nastier trials. One said she sat through a case at the Inner London Crown Court in 2000, which lasted months. Her husband was accused of attempted murder, and his defence was that he had fallen on his wife with the knife. There were multiple and graphically described sexual assault charges. After hearing this, the type of crime I might have to hear about had become a real concern for me. Thankfully, this case appears to have a level of violence I can cope with, a 15-certificate crime at worst. My second reaction to hearing the charges is fascination. There is no question mark over whether the defendant was there in that place or whether he had done certain things, but why he acted in this way. It is all about the psychology. What was his intention? It seems a perfect case for someone interested in stories, and that is how I initially approached the trial. I was expecting a beginning and a middle, for which we as a jury would collectively provide an ending. As an audience or a reader, we like to feel involved in endings. Elizabeth Haynes wrote that murder of Harriet Monkton with just this kind of involvement in mind. The Victorian case with an unsatisfying ending was taken from the National Archives, and as readers we are invited to solve the fictionalised version. The author supplies her own verdict, because it is important to supply an ending in fiction, even when there isn't one in fact. Sometimes real life doesn't tie things up neatly. I don't even consider this possibility at the time. 
Stories are vital to the way we make sense of things, and this tiny case held at this very odd time drew on ideas which never seemed more relevant to me. Home, safety, and especially surveillance, because there's a lot of surveillance in this case. The first exterior CCTV camera footage shows the driveway of a house at 8.10pm. There are two cars, one on the left of the screen and one on the right, which we later learn is in front of the metal garage door. At the top of the screen, a vehicle pulls up on the pavement. Someone gets out. He goes to the right of the screen and talks to someone else, but it's hard to hear what is said. It is later explained as the prosecution counsel as being don't call the police. The first man returns to the driveway and now it's clearer that he's holding two items, a large kitchen knife in his left hand and a baseball bat in his right. He bends down, scraping the ground with a knife and the noise sounds metallic. Maybe the knife is scraping against some kind of drain or guttering. He's muttering to himself but it soon turns to shouts as he strides about the driveway. Oi, give me my money, you fucking queers. There are multiple variations on that wording, but that's the general theme. He bashes the car on the left with the baseball bat, denting the bonnet and doors, hitting the windows which never quite seem to shatter. There is a resounding noise as, out of sight, he hits the metal garage door, shouting all the time. The car on the right isn't touched at all. He goes out of sight to the left of the screen, and there is the sound of further banging and shouting, then the shattering of glass. He returns to the car, and smashes at the windows again. So relentless is the attack, and so intact is the car at the end, it's almost an advert for the sturdiness of a Mercedes. The strange thing is, that despite his words, there's little urgency. His progress is calm and steady. He goes out of sight again, and there is the sound of banging, and then a lot of glass breaking all at once. The sound is clear and shocking. The second exterior CCTV camera points down the side of the house, its scope including the steps to the front door, the glazed back door and the gate to the garden. In the footage, the sound of the shouting and the attack on the car in the garage can be heard and then we see the man bashing at everything he can reach. We see him hit the side window and hear it smash. We hear but can't quite see him hit the front door, some kind of special composite which is barely marked in the photos. He hits at the glass back door, He hits the gate, tries to force it with his shoulder, but it holds. He goes to the driveway, and then he's back at the fully glazed rear door, bashing at it with the handle of the baseball bat, hitting the top corners repeatedly until it shatters right down to the bottom. It takes a few more blows to clear the door of glass, and then he steps through. I'm in now, boys. The CCTV recording is how the prosecution chose to introduce us to the defendant, and it certainly makes an impression. A jury will already have made unconscious judgments and assumptions even before this point, knowing that the defendant is muscular or a builder or has tattoos, any number of unspoken cues. We won't even know it. Our role here as jurors is to separate out what we instinctively feel from what we are about to learn. The house at the centre of this case is in Essex. Everyone who testifies lives there, as well as us jurors. 
there are many different versions of Essex. Salt marshes, Roman ruins, islands, villages, sandy beaches and ancient forests. This court case has its focus west of Chelmsford, towards London, and that well-known Essex of mansions and money that is so often seen on reality TV. In contrast, at the other end of Essex on the east coast, the village of Jaywick was named as the most deprived area in England for the third time in 2019. Made up partly from 1930s prefabs, former holiday cottages, the shortage of housing after the Second World War led to their being used as permanent homes by the 1950s. There was no infrastructure, and it still suffers from high levels of crime and unemployment. We define ourselves by the physical places we live in, by town, county, region or country. Identifying with place gives us a sense of belonging, and often an identity to embrace or fight against. Chelmsford lies between these two sides of Essex. It feels right that this neutral territory is where the case is being held. In normal circumstances, moving to a new home is an act of faith, and the homes we buy are symbolic of the things we value and desire. Place is about ownership, belonging and stability, as much as it is about setting. In 2020, our sense of place has become much more complicated, especially when it comes to the places where we live. Because of the pandemic, workers become home and vice versa. We've become more attached than ever to our gardens. Maybe we've realised that we need more distance from other people. Maybe we want to be somewhere else or with someone else. This case focuses on a newly renovated house in the expensive part of Essex, the Essex of mansions and money. Where we choose to live is important, and the idea of what makes a house a desirable home casts a shadow over everything in this case. Episode 1 of A Summer of Spying is the first of five weekly episodes which explore what happened in the court case tried in 2020 from the point of view of juror and author Sarah Armstrong. In the next episode we hear from two of the witnesses inside the house. If you can't wait to hear what happened or you'd like more background information on the story behind the case, check out the show notes for a link to the ebook which accompanies this podcast published by Sandstone Press.